Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Ever since the lottery was established, Sam had bought a ticket every day for the million-dollar prize. It had kind of become a ho-hum thing for him, so he rarely even checked his ticket stub. He was now 85 years old. His grown children happened to check his ticket one day and found out he had won the million dollars. But since Sam had a bad heart at 85 years old, they were a little afraid to tell him for fear of how his heart would hold up. So they went to his pastor and asked him if he would convey the good news. So his pastor went to Sam and sat down with him and said, uh, trying to break the ice, well, Sam, let's say you won a million dollars, what would you do with it? And Sam said, well, I would give half of it to the church. And the pastor had a heart attack. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 form the longest section of Scripture dealing with giving. And it's a passage in which we're looking at seven things. We saw in verses 1 to 5 the model of giving. And the model for giving on a human level is the Macedonian model. These were people who, out of their great ordeal of affliction and their deep poverty, they overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. In fact, they gave joyfully according to their ability and beyond their ability. In fact, they even begged Paul to get to give. And the key to that is in verse 5, that they first gave themselves to the Lord. That's the model of giving We saw the manner of giving in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, they're told to complete their giving, and in verse 7, they're told to abound in their giving. You have to complete your giving. When you're intending to give, that's not giving. As I said last time, giving is not giving until it's given. You have to complete it. And then you have to abound in it, just as you abound in your spiritual gift. You abound in faith, you abound in knowledge, you may abound in witnessing. You're to abound in this grace as well, the grace of giving. And then thirdly, we saw the motive of giving in verses 8 to 10. And there at the outset of verse 8, he says, I'm not speaking this as a command. Giving is not a commandment in the New Testament because God wants us to give willingly and cheerfully. And instead of that, he lays out three quick motives here. Number one is the practical motive in verse 8. He says, giving is the proof of your love. God so loved the world that he what? He gave. How do you so love, so show your love? You give as well. That's the practical motive. Then the theological motive in verse 9, we see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor for your sake, that you through his poverty might become rich. We simply have to look at the Lord Jesus to the, see the expression of grace giving. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And the more you come to understand his grace, the more you will be motivated to give graciously. And then third is the personal motive. In verse 10, he says, It's to your advantage to give. 
And we noted last week some advantages you have. It blesses you. It draws you closer to God. It strengthens your faith. It allows you to taste what real living is, and it is an investment for eternity. And then this morning we come to the fourth point in this passage, and that is the means of giving in verses 11 to 15. And when it comes to the subject of the means of giving, there are really only two issues that God is concerned about. And those two issues are your ability and secondly, equality. First of all, ability. Look at verse 11. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now, what's that tell us? God is not concerned with how much you would give if you had more. We love to play that game. If I ever get a lot, I'll give a lot. God is not concerned about how much you give if you have more. God is concerned with how much you do with what you already have. He's concerned about your ability And when it comes to giving, there are various ability levels. Jesus told the story in Matthew 25 of the talents. A talent is equal to 15 years' wages. And he said one guy had five talents, one guy had two talents, one guy had one talent. Everybody had a different amount. And the question is not, did you do as much as your neighbor did? The question is, did you do as much as you could? Because God gave you that ability, and he expects you to be responsible for that ability level. You say, well, Dan, my two cents worth isn't going to matter. Well, it does matter to God. Because if you give it, and that's the level of your ability to give, then God is pleased with that. The widow, the widow gave her two mites in Luke 21. Now, I imagine the temple treasurer was kind of frustrated with that. He's like, I hate these little coins in the bottom of the box. You know, I've got to dig these things out. It's not even worth the trouble. That was his perspective. But from God's perspective, Jesus said she gave more than everybody else because they gave out of their surplus, and she gave her all, which tells me that $20 in the offering can be either monumental or minimal, depending on your ability to give. Jim Harper was telling me this week that one of the prisoners gave $50 to his ministry recently, and I think he said that they make $7.50 a week in prison. So $50 for him was a huge gift according to his ability. And that's what God looks at. You see, God is not looking at the portion as much as he's looking at the proportion. He's given you an ability to give, and he's not measuring on the basis of simply amounts. He's looking at your ability to give. 
And so that's the first point of the means. The second part of the means is equality in verses 13 to 15. Notice verse 13. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. Paul is not asking you to be sacrificial in giving so that it can go to somebody who will spend it lavishly. He says this is all about equality. And then look at verse 14. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. If today God has blessed you, you are able to be a conduit for God to meet the needs of other people. Ten years from now, guess what? That person you're blessing today may have an abundance. You may be the one in need, and they are the conduit giving back to you. You see, God's concern is that there be equality. You say, well, Dan, this is not fair. This sounds like socialism. You see, God has given you things so that you might meet the needs of others. I think sometimes I'm praying and saying, God, I need you to meet this need, and he's saying, I already gave it to Fred, but he's hoarding it over there. He's got it, but he's not a conduit. He's hanging on to it. God meets our needs through each other, and today, when I have an abundance, I need to be giving because tomorrow I may not be the one with an abundance. And when I'm not the one who has an abundance, when I'm the one with a need, I'm certainly not saying it's not fair for somebody else to meet my need at that point in time. I was thinking about it. You know, if... if, if, uh, Well, let me show you the illustration first. Look look at verse 15. He gives an illustration here. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and and he who gathered little had no lack. Now, he's talking here from Exodus chapter 16 and verse 18, and there he's talking about manna. Remember manna, that God delivered it to the children of Israel every morning. They got manna. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just give it to them once a week or drop it down once a month, say, hey, make a little cabinet and just keep it there for the month? Why did he give it to them every day? I think there were a couple lessons in that. Number one, it reminded them to trust God. What's the Bible say we are to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. It reminded them that God was providing what they needed every day, day after day after day, and we need to see our provisions that same way. And then secondly, I think it taught them to share. Don't you think it was pretty easy to share manna with somebody? I mean, it had a shelf life of one day. You know, you tried to keep it till the next day, it it rotted and stunk. So if you had a lot of manna, was it real difficult to say, you know what, have some of my manna because tomorrow morning I'm going to get some more. Let me suggest to you that we are no different than the children of Israel. Everything you have is a gift from God. 
Everything you have has fallen down from him, and you've simply picked it up as a blessing from him. We need to learn to acknowledge that and trust him with that, and we need to learn to share what we have. If the electricity went off today and you have a freezer in your garage and all your, you know, valuable meat thawed, would you find it real difficult to share that with somebody else? No. Because you would say, the expiration date is like two days. I'll give it away. What is the expiration date on your possessions? And why is it that you hoard those things rather than sharing the manna that God has given to you. Great illustration to remind us. It all comes from him. He gives it to us daily. He provides it with, for us. <laughs> Excuse me. We need to be willing to share that with other people. Which brings us to the method of giving in verses 16 to 23. And these verses don't really address our individual method of giving, but rather our collective method of giving. It's about, (coughs) I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cough into that, but I couldn't wait. (laughs) We live in a day when financial improprieties among Christian ministries is commonplace. There are a lot of Christian ministers who raise funds for a certain cause and then they divert that money to something else. There are ministers who handle large amounts of money with little or no accountability today. We've even seen ministers serve time in prison for misusing funds. That should never happen. There is no excuse for that because this passage, interestingly enough, tells churches and Christian ministries how to handle their funds in an appropriate way. And there are two issues that stand out in these verses. One is quantity, and the other is quality. When it comes to dealing with funds, you're to have a quantity of characters with a quality of character. I want you to notice the quantity in here. There are several characters involved. In verse 16, he mentions Titus. And then in verse 18, he says, we have sent along with him the brother. And then down in verse 22, we have sent with them our brother. So there is a quantity of people involved in handling the money. First of all is Titus. Look at verse 16. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Titus has an earnestness for the people at Corinth. He has a zealousness. He has a deep concern for them. In fact, Paul says, he's got the same concern that I have. And where did he get that deep concern for the church at Corinth? Well, where does anybody get a deep concern for people? He got it from God. And I think there are a couple lessons here. If you want to have more concern for people, get closer to God. Because when your heart is close to God's heart, he's going to pour into your heart what he cares about. And he has a deep concern for people. And then I think there's a second lesson for us here, and that is that God sometimes burdens certain people with certain people. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that Timothy had a deep concern for the church at Philippi. 
Here we read that uh, Titus had a deep concern for the church in Corinth, which tells me it's not uncommon for maybe God to place on your heart a concern for certain people. Maybe you have a, a, a concern for certain age of people. Maybe you have a concern for a certain location. What was it? Slovakia. God may lay that on your heart. Maybe you have a concern for people with a certain background that you can relate to. God lays those people on your heart just like he did with Titus. And so Paul says, thanks be to God for that. And then the evidence of that concern comes in verse 17 where Paul says, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own concern. Paul says the evidence of his earnestness is that he accepted Paul's appeal. Now, what was Paul's appeal? Well, if you go back to verse 6 of this chapter, the appeal was to go to Corinth and complete the collection of money. In fact, here in verse 17, he says he not only accepted, but he was already packing. When I asked him to go, he was already going to go anyway. You know, I love to ask somebody to do something for the Lord when the Lord has already placed on their heart to do it. That makes asking a whole lot of fun. You say, would you consider doing this ministry? And they say, God's been speaking to me about that and laying that on my heart, and I'm ready to go. That's what happened with Titus. And then we see the brother in verse 18. Notice him. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Now, who is this brother? Well, Paul doesn't even have to mention him because his says his fame is spread through all the churches. He's, he's the most sought-after preacher of that day. So as Paul writes in the first century, he says, you know about this guy because he's famous. Let me interject this. If you're going to be famous, be famous in the gospel. This guy's not famous because he invented somebody nobody had invented something no one had thought of. He's famous because he knew and shared the gospel with people. That's what he was famous about. You say, well, who is this guy? Well, let me give you some speculation here. This is speculative preaching at its best. Who would be famous in the gospel in the first century? Some have suggested, well, the most famous in the gospel would be the four guys who wrote the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Out of those four, the one that Paul was closest to, and the one that Paul would probably send in this situation would be who? Luke. And Luke wrote his gospel about three years after this, so he was probably preparing all that information. He said he wrote a historical account, account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So Luke would be a great guess, if I had to guess who's famous in the gospel at this point in time. We also learn something else about him in verse 19. It says, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. So he's somebody who was traveling on the behalf of a church. Now, what they did in that day and what Paul did to ensure 
that this was done right was the church, say the church at uh, Berea gave a gift to Paul to take to Jerusalem. They also sent a guy to go with the gift to make sure it got safely to Jerusalem and to make sure there was nothing illicit going on. So it was all about accountability. You say, well, if Luke was traveling with Paul, how did he become famous in preaching the gospel and how did he become one of the representatives for one of the churches? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I want to take you back to Acts chapter 20 and I want to show you something. Acts chapter 20. I'm going to cough again, so brace yourself. (coughs) Sorry. I can't escape this mic. It's stuck to my ear. Chapter 20, you'll remember, is a passage where Paul is saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus, and he's on his way to Jerusalem delivering this gift. So that's the context. In Acts chapter 20, uh, notice verse 3. The end of verse 2 says, He came to Greece, and there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Greece is where Corinth was, so he was in Corinth at this time. Verse 4 And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea. Here's the representatives of the churches. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Sedundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Verse 5, but these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Who's us? Well, who wrote Acts? Luke did. Now, look at verse 4 again. If you look at verse 4, you see the churches mentioned here, and there are two prominent churches that are not represented in verse 4. Those two churches would be the church at Philippi and the church at Corinth. Now, keep, keep your finger... Well, you don't have to keep your finger there. Turn back to Acts 16. Acts 16, verse 10... Verse 10, when he had seen the vision, the man of Macedonia, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea from Troas, we, we ran a straight course to... This always sounds better in my office when I don't say it out loud. Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis... And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. Notice the pronouns in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now, Luke is talking about we, and he does that throughout this chapter until he gets to verse 40. And in verse 40, he says, they went out of the prison, that's uh, Paul and Silas, and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Verse, chapter 17, verse 1, now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So he's talking about we, and then we get to the end of chapter 16, into chapter 17, he's talking about they. 
They left. They departed. Where is Luke? He's still in Philippi. He stayed there. And what you'll notice if you read chapter 17 and chapter 18 and chapter 19, you'll find that the pronouns are all they. They, 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 because Luke is still in Philippi. And then you get to chapter 20 and verse 5, and he says, but these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Now what that tells me is that Luke spent about six years in the city of Philippi while Paul was going other places, which would give Luke the time to become that gospel proclaimer that was notorious among the churches, and it would make sense, since none is named, that he would probably be the representative for the church at Philippi. And then when you come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I won't take you on any more wild goose chases, but come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He tells us in verses 20 and 21 why he's so careful to get a quantity of people handling the finances. And he gives us the negative reason in verse 20 and then the positive reason in verse 21. First, negatively, he says in verse 20, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. Would have been a lot simpler for Paul to say, you know, I'll just take the money and travel alone. Or just Titus and I will do it because the two of us can travel cheaper than this whole group of men. They were going about 700 miles to Jerusalem in that day and had to cross the Mediterranean Sea. Would have been simpler to do that, and yet Paul gets a representative from every church because he is very careful not to be discredited in his ministry. And then he gives the positive side in verse 21. He says, for we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Paul says, not only do I not want to be discredited negatively, I want to be looked at as honorable, not only in the sight of God, but also in the sight of men. You see, when you're handling money for the Lord, it's not enough to say, trust me. You know, just trust me. Or God knows I'm doing what's right. That's not enough. You you see, I need to be sure that my actions are not only honorable to the Lord, but they are honorable to men as well. For example, let's say that I have a key to the offering boxes, and I'm the only one who has a key to the offering boxes. And on Sunday afternoon, after I have lunch, I come up here and I open all the boxes and I take all the money and I go into my office, and I count it. And then on Monday morning, I take it down to the bank, and I deposit it. I'm the guy that takes care of that, and I just say, trust me on this, because my conscience is right before the Lord. You see, that would not be the way to handle finances. Even if I was doing it the right way, I would create the possibility that someone could accuse me of doing wrong and discredit the ministry and discredit the Lord. It's to be honorable not only before the Lord, but before men. And so we're to take great care in the administration of church finances. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, we're to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We're to be careful that we're not accused of something, and that requires great accountability 
in the handling of finances. And that's why he says there's to be a quantity of people. And he mentions that third person, our brother, in verse 22. He says, we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. Now, this same brother is probably mentioned in chapter 12 and verse 18 of 2 Corinthians. There, he traveled with Titus the first time to Corinth. And Titus traveled from Ephesus, so we could probably guess that he's a guy from Ephesus, which when we go back to Acts chapter 20 and verse 4, the representative from Ephesus was Trophimus. So if I had to speculate, that's who I say this is. And even though we don't know his name, what he does tell us in verse 22 is that he has been tested many ways and in a variety of ways. He was a man of character, which brings us to our second point here, and that is not only quantity of characters, but quality of character. And Paul writes a brief recommendation in verse 23 when he says, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. What's he say about Titus? He says, you're already familiar with him. He's my partner. He's my fellow worker. And what does he say about these two unnamed brothers? He mentions their commission. They are messengers of the churches, appointed delegates. And then he mentions their character. And what does he say? They're a glory to Christ. I can't think of a higher compliment to somebody's character than to simply say, he's a glory to Christ. He does all to the glory of God. So there's the method of giving. It must be a method that is above reproach in the sight of God and the sight of men. And to ensure that, we need to have a quantity of characters with quality of character. And let me just finish that story. We practice this in this church. I do not have a key to the boxes. Uh, We have no one person that has a key to the boxes. We have several men. If you you look in the offices after church sometime, you'll see a plurality of men in there counting the money, being accountable, and that is a quantity of individuals with quality of character who are taking care of that. Now, sixthly, and I'll go through these rather briefly, is the menace of giving in chapter 8, verse 24, to chapter 9, verse 5. The church at Corinth made promises to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem, and now when it's time to fulfill the promise, there's some question about whether they're going to really give the money. And this passage kind of indicates what some of the problem was, or to make that more applicable to you today, when you purpose in your heart to give, and then it comes time to give, there are certain menaces that might stop you from actually finishing that process. And I would say to you today, in this passage you're going to give four menaces, and I would say to you today that these are just as menacing today as they were 2,000 years ago. Those four menaces are these. Number one, insensitivity. Notice verse 24, the last verse of chapter 8. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Back when the needs in the church at Jerusalem became known to the other churches, verse 10 tells us, 
Corinth was the first church to raise its hand and say, we want to give. Which tells me they had great intentions. And they made some great promises. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how much we're going to give. But now when it's time to prove their love, Paul's got some questions about whether it's still there. You see, there was an insensitivity that may have been setting in. And that happens oftentimes to us, doesn't it? You ever been moved and sensitive to the needs of somebody and you said, you know what, I'm going to do something about that. And when I get my paycheck, I'm going to provide for that person. Well, come your paycheck, guess what can happen sometimes? You can get less sensitive than you were when you made that decision. And you've got to fight that menace of insensitivity in your life. Second menace is indifference. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case. Paul says, I really don't need to write to you because you were ready a year ago. And a year ago, you were full of zeal. In fact, your zeal has actually motivated other churches to give. But now when it's crunch time, Paul's wondering if the zeal is still there. Now, what's the opposite of zeal? Well, the opposite of zeal is dullness, laziness, lethargy, disinterest. You see, it's possible that they have become indifferent to the needs in Jerusalem over time. And that's a menace to giving. Third menace is procrastination in verses 3 and 4. Notice verse 3. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. Paul says, I've bragged about you to the Macedonians. I've told them how excited you are about giving. I've told them how much you've promised to give. So it's going to be pretty embarrassing if they come with me, their representatives come to get your money that you promised, and it's not there. And why would the money not be there? It's not because they're saying no. It's because they're saying, I think I'll put it off. Paul told them in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, I want you to give. Every first day of the week, they had apparently neglected that giving, and they were saying, you know, we're going to get around to it one of these days. And that procrastination had become a menace to their giving. You ever do that? You say, well, I, I give to the Lord, but uh, let me ask you this. If you purpose in your heart to give and you happen not to be here for three or four Sundays for whatever reason? Do you still give when you weren't here to give? Or do you just say, oh well, I'll forget about it and move on? You see, when we procrastinate, when we say, well, I'm going to give, but I'll get around to it, We probably never give. 
And that's why God says you're to do it on the first day of the week. There's to be a regular time to give because it motivates us to give when we're supposed to. And then fourthly, he talks about covetousness in verse 5, and now he gets real blunt. Look at verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. The number one menace of giving is covetousness. What is covetousness? Covetousness is the desire to acquire. Particularly, it's the desire to acquire what somebody else has. It's the 10th commandment. In case you get through the first nine and you're going, I'm okay. God says, thou shalt not covet. And it gets us all. It's the love of money, which 1 Timothy 6.10 says is a root of all sorts of evil. Covetousness. It's an ugly sin with ugly consequences. Achan coveted money from Jericho. And as a result, Israel lost a battle and he lost his life. Balaam coveted money and sold his allegiance to Israel. Delilah coveted money and turned against Samson. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, coveted money, Naaman's money. And instead, he got Naaman's leprosy. Ananias and Sapphira coveted money and lost their lives. Judas coveted money and sold his Savior. Covetousness is an ugly sin, but it's a subtle sin. How does it work in the area of giving? It desires what you have purposed to give. It desires what belongs to God. Can you imagine? When we don't give, we are coveting what God has. We all know how it works. You've purposed in your heart to give, and it comes time to give, and you reach in your pocket and you go, wow, you know, I could give that, or I could hang on to it, and it would pay for some things that I really want. That's covetousness. You know, the interesting thing is there's only one way to break covetousness. And you know what that is? To give. It's the antidote to covetousness. In fact, it's interesting in verse 5 when he, when he says there at the end, be ready, have it ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. That That word bountiful gift is literally the word eulogy, which is translated blessing. So what he's saying is your money can either be a blessing to others or it can be a curse to you. If you allow covetousness to enter into the picture and stop your giving, then that that money becomes a curse to you rather than the very blessing that it would have been to others and to yourself. So those are the menaces of giving, insensitivity, indifference, procrastination, and covetousness. And my challenge to you as we close today is don't let them keep you from the blessing of giving. Now, I suppose it would be appropriate after a message like this to take an offering. 
but we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to take communion. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't let insensitivity or indifference or procrastination or covetousness, excuse me, (coughs) sorry, stop him? That's why I say the theme verse here in chapter 8 is verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, it's a reminder to us of the price that Jesus paid to shower his riches on us. So we're going to take communion today. If you're a guest with us, you're welcome to participate. This is not our supper, it's the Lord's Supper. So if you're a believer, you can participate. They are at the various stations. As you prepare your heart, you come and take the bread and the cup and take it and return to your seat. Let's give thanks before we do. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for these practical exhortations about money, which if we're honest, we know is so often the most important thing to us. When Jesus said you can't serve two masters, he mentioned you, God, and money. Because it so often becomes that idol in our lives. Father, I pray today that you would help us to learn to control our money by your power and not allow our money to control us. And Lord, I thank you that right in this passage on giving, there is the example of the Lord Jesus who gave his all for us so that we might go from poverty to riches. And Lord, as we reflect on that today and take the bread and the cup, we can only say in the words of the final statement of chapter 9, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died in our place, that you took our sins and gave us your righteousness. And Lord, I pray that you would humble our hearts today and not only humble our hearts, but allow us to open our hands and surrender to you that we release those things that we're hanging on to so that we might truly be conduits in all that we have, our time, our money, our energy, that we might serve you with it all, that we might be like the Macedonians, those who first gave themselves to the Lord, and then it was easy to give everything else. Lord, I pray that that would mark our lives today so that we would truly be people who can be characterized as being a glory to God. We pray in Jesus' worthy name.